Okay, we are in Galatians. So if you've got your Bibles with you, you might want to turn to Galatians chapter 1. Um, we're doing a, a series. This is the second week in a series in the book of Galatians. And we've called that series, Called to be Free. And the reason I've called it Called to be Free is because in chapter 5, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, are called to be free. It's a great line. And to be honest, I think that probably lots of us, lots of the time, don't find being a Christian a terribly easy thing to do. And we walk around kind of disappointed with ourselves most of the time that we're not the Christians who we think that God is expecting us to be. And I feel really, really excited that over the next few months, which, uh, this series is going to take us a little bit past Easter, God is going to keep saying to us again and again and again, be free be released. You know, all of that sense of guilt and, and the baggage that we carry around with all of those, I ought to be doing this and I should be this and all of that, God is going to cut all of that away over time. I feel really excited about that. Um, so, uh, Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to read from verse 6. Let me just say, first of all, the background. The Apostle Paul is writing to a group of churches uh, in the Roman province of Galatia. And that is kind of right slap bang in the middle of where Turkey is today. And uh, these are churches that he has planted. So at some point on his missionary journeys, you can read about it in Acts chapter 14, he visits these places, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe. I don't know if that, that's quite how you say it. But he visits these places, he preaches the gospel, he demonstrates the kingdom of God with all kinds of miracles, and it's mostly to a Gentile audience audience, i.e. not a Jewish audience, and these Gentiles, they're like, oh, that sounds brilliant, I'd love to become a Christian, and loads of them flood into the kingdom of God, and these churches are established, and so the Apostle Paul kind of lays a foundation of a church in each place, and then he continues with his journeys, and then other people come along after him, and they start to teach something that isn't quite what he said. So they're saying, well, I know that you kind of have become Christians, but really, if you want to be a proper Christian, like really belong to the people of God, being a Christian is one thing, but being a Jewish Christian is really where, where you need to be. And uh, so these people are called the Judaizers because they want people to become Jewish, uh, you know, part of the Judaism. And so, uh, you know, it's like, well, men amongst us, it's just a short operation. Let's call it a little nip and tuck, uh, and then you'll be into the kingdom of God absolutely for sure. And, uh, well, okay, you have to visit the temple occasionally, and there are certain foods that you can't eat and things like that. It's not much of a big deal, but just to make sure that you're a Christian. And the Apostle Paul writes this letter to these churches to respond to that, really. That's the point. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say it again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. 
Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. <clears throat> okay, so, I want to suggest that this passage teaches us two things about ourselves and one thing about preachers and Bible teachers and people like that. So first of all, the first thing that this passage teaches us about ourselves is that we need tough love. The Apostle Paul, uh, in every other letter that he writes, starts off with thanksgiving. He starts off with, I thank my God for all of you because you're such brilliant Christians and you're really great people, or something like that. And quite often, as well as the thanksgiving, he starts off with a prayer. You know, I'm praying that God would fill you with the spirit of wisdom and understanding, or something like that, revelation. And then often also he starts with a commendation. So... You know, everywhere I go, I hear about the brilliant things that you're doing with the poor or something like that. You know, there's those kind of things at the start of every other letter except this one. And in this one, he kind of does the little, this is from Paul, and it's to the Galatians, and then it's like, right, okay, let's get down to business. Verse 6, I am astonished. And that's the kind of ancient Greek way of saying... What on earth do you think you're playing at? You know, something is badly wrong. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, he talks about these people who are trying to pervert the gospel. And then in verse 9, he says that those people who are trying to pervert the gospel, they should be under God's curse. And he says that twice. They should be under God's curse. And all of this language is supposed to kind of slap the Galatians around the face. It's like, stop right where you are. Do not move another muscle. Something is wrong, and you need to realize it straight away. Now, we might think to ourselves, well, maybe Paul just doesn't like them very much. You know, it's, it's quite easy to be harsh with someone who you're not that keen on, isn't it? But actually, nothing could be further from the truth. These are people who he deeply, profoundly loves. Uh, and so, for example, nine different times in this letter, he calls them my brothers and sisters. And then in chapter 4, verse 19, I love this. He says, my dear children, for who, whom I am again in the pains of childbirth. It's like, I feel the anxiety of this situation so much, it causes me almost physical pain. He desperately loves these people, and that is precisely why he is willing to step over the threshold of their lives and say, you've got this wrong, you're out of order, you're in error, you're in very severe danger. He cares about them enough to confront them. And the reality is that we all need people in our lives who are willing to do exactly that, who care about us enough to step over the threshold of our lives and to confront us and to challenge us when they can see that we're in error or that we're in sin. Uh, I was looking for uh, some verses with this idea in it in the book of Proverbs, and I came up with these ones. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. I love that. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. I nearly called this talk Wounds from a Friend, but then I found this other verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 6.23. Correction and instruction are the way to life. Abundant life is found when we have people in our lives who are willing to correct us, 
when I was at Bible College, which feels like about last week, but wasn't, I, uh, we used to have these different kind of very well-known preachers and teachers who, who would come round and take a chapel service on a Wednesday. And we had this guy, Gordon MacDonald. And Gordon MacDonald had been the pastor of the largest church in New England in America. He was also the president of InterVarsity, which is a massive student movement, Christian student movement in America. And he'd also written this book called Ordering Your Private World. And it was all about how do you make sure that your life doesn't suddenly collapse? You know, how do you make sure that you, you, you just don't suddenly uh, stumble into sin and lose everything? And, and it was all about kind of putting structures in place in your hidden life and in, in your personal life to make sure that you've got a, a good chance of, of, of not falling into sin. And having done all of that and travelled all around the world talking about how not to fall into sin, Gordon MacDonald had an affair and his whole life fell apart and he lost everything for a period of time. And having spent a number of years out of ministry and trying to you know, patch up his marriage, he then began to, to travel around speaking about the danger of not having your hidden life actually in the open towards somebody. And he came to our Bible college and he talked about God's forgiveness and God's grace and God's kindness. And, and then there was a kind of a, a Q&A session where people were able to put their hands up and ask questions. And one person put their hand up and asked the one question that all of the rest of us were thinking. He said, how did you manage that? You know, how, how did that happen? That you were the one, you were the one person who was going around telling everyone about not falling into sin and then you allowed that to happen in your own life. And he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, I had no one in my life who would look me in the eye and ask, how is it with your soul? Actually, nowhere in the world is it easy to confront people. You know, you could go to all kinds of Eastern cultures, Eastern societies, where the, the value, the high value, is on honor and, and not being ashamed. And, and in that culture, it's so difficult to, to come up to someone and to confront them with their sin or, or their error because you'd be causing shame for them. And, and then by doing that, then they wouldn't think that too highly of you and then you'd be ashamed. And so in their culture, I'm sure it may be the case in Sri Lanka, I don't know, but it's so difficult to actually confront somebody, challenge somebody about something. But the truth is, in our culture, in Western culture, the high value is on tolerance, isn't it? You know, I'll allow you to do whatever you want in your life as long as you allow me to do whatever I want in my life. And we'll just tolerate one another and, and that works pretty well. And so then in our culture, to step over the threshold of somebody else's life and to say, I think, I think you're badly mistaken in this area of your life, is, comes across as profoundly intolerant, doesn't it? And very judgmental. But as Christians, we have to get beyond our culture because we have to have people in our lives who will keep us on the narrow path that leads to life and off the wide road that leads to destruction. Um, and so, uh, really, the two questions for us this morning are, first of all, do I have someone in my life who I have confidence will be willing to ask me the questions that I really don't want to answer? And then the second question is, 
Am I willing to do that for the people I love? Am I willing, even though it's profoundly uncomfortable, am I willing to step over the threshold of other people's lives and ask them the questions that are going to make them squirm? To ask questions like, you know, a while ago, Jesus was the burning center of your life. And, and every other decision in your life was processed according to your relationship with the Lord Jesus. And now Jesus seems to be peripheral to your life. What on earth is going on with you? Or, I notice that you have a very odd relationship with a bunch of women who are not your wife. What is going on with that? Or, whenever we hang out, you get very drunk. Is there a problem? Or, where are you? You know, we used to see each other every week at church, but we never see one another anymore, and I'm at church every week. Where are you? We need people in our lives who will hold us to account, and we need to do that for one another. Now, wouldn't it be lovely if all of us had a set of relationships like that? You know, wouldn't it be lovely if, if, if each one of us had a kind of a matrix of relationships, um, you know, people who we knew were safe, and there was a kind of a mutual submission and a mutual love and care for one another to the degree that we would be willing to step over the threshold of each other's lives and hold each other to account. That would be lovely, wouldn't it? Do you know there is a, a phrase that we use all the time to describe a, a, a matrix of relationships like that. It's called the local church. And I meet people all the time, and you must meet them too, and there may well be people here or in Stonehaven this morning who they say things like, well, I don't really see the need to commit to one particular local church. You know, I like to belong to lots of churches, or I like to see myself as just being able to go around and see what God's doing and bless what God's doing. And my immediate thought, and to be honest, I am quite naughty like this, but my immediate thought when people say things like that is, I bet you bless lots of people with your presence and none of them with your washing up. You know, I, I bet you never actually roll your sleeves up and do anything for anybody. But my second thought, which is probably a bit more significant, is for them, is your, your walk with the Lord is not safe. If you, don't, if you aren't committed to one local church, not even two local churches, one local church where you have a, a group of people who, who you have given permission to to ask difficult questions of your life. You are not safe. And you can't guarantee that you'll still be walking with the Lord in several years' time unless you are committed to a local church. That's what the local church is for. Now, some of us also, we might say, do you know, I'd really like to just meet kind of week by week with a group of people, you know, just every week, say, and, and just hang out together and maybe open the Bible together, pray together, and develop the kind of relationships to the depth and, and, and you know, just so that when you challenge one another, you'd be challenging them from a, a position of knowledge and information and trust. You know, actually, we have a phrase for that, call, for, for that too. That's called small group. And um, lots of us say things like, small group's not really my cup of tea. You know, I don't really do small groups. And I want to say, if you want to still be walking with the Lord in a few years' time, you might not do small groups now. Do small groups. You know, if it's not your cup of tea, make it your cup of tea. And I'm not saying that because in small groups, we then, you know, 
humiliate one another for a couple of hours every week, you know, like just pick on somebody and just in front of the other 11 people or something. Just, but that is where you develop the relationships that are necessary so that then we can say to one another, hey, listen, why don't we just go for a coffee this week? There's something I've been meaning to say to you. The other thing is, how do we know when the right time is? You know, when we see something in our brother or sister's life, how do we know when it's the right time to just step over, the, you know, get over ourselves and actually say something? Well, I think verse 6 is important. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you. Notice the present tense. You are so quickly deserting. Right? So this, he has just noticed this. This is something that has just come to his attention and immediately he's doing it. It's not good enough to say to our friend, I did wonder whether I should say something. I decided against it. I, that's not good enough. The right time to confront somebody with something that you see in their lives is right now. That's the first thing. So... Uh, we need tough love. That's the first thing. You might say, well, why do we need tough love? Which brings me on to the second thing that we learn about ourselves from this, this passage, which is we're prone to wander. And in fact, I've put there, we're prone to wander quickly. Verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. The truth is that the Galatians had really quickly embraced the gospel. It, you know, this was a very exciting thing to them. They'd seen uh, the, the presence of God and the power of God manifested in a very dramatic way. They'd seen miraculous and supernatural healings. And alongside that, they'd heard the truth of the gospel and they'd responded. They'd just run into the kingdom of God. And they'd continue to see lives changed and, and God doing remarkable things in their midst. Now you would think, wouldn't you, that if you saw a whole bunch of healings and the power of God manifested and people's lives being dramatically changed by, by Jesus, you would think that your immediate response would be, let's not move a muscle. You know, let's just stay in our posture between us and God. This is working for us, and so we'll just keep seeking God, and we'll keep praying like we were doing before, and we'll keep holding on to the teaching exactly as we've heard it, because we don't want anything to change. We just want to continue to experience the grace of God in our midst. You would think that would be the case. But actually, not only did they desert the God, but they deserted God quickly. Actually, if the scriptures teach us anything, they teach us that again and again and again, God's people, when left to their own devices, they quickly desert the Lord. They quickly move away from what they've heard or what they've experienced. Think about the Israelites in the desert. You know, they've just seen God deliver them with all these... Anyone seen the Exodus film yet? Did you like it? Yeah, it was all right. It was all right. It's probably not a classic, but it'll do. Uh, you know, you get the impression of all of these um, plagues, one after the other. And then, you, you know, God rescuing his people from Egypt and then uh, taking them out through the Red Sea and they're walking through on dry land and then the waves crash over their enemies and then they go... That's where the film ends. Oh, I maybe ruined it for some people. Anyway, and then... 
They go through the desert. They get to Mount Sinai. God comes down in a cloud over Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up to meet with God. And, and having experienced all of that power, you would expect them to be very faithful to God from that point on. But actually, in Exodus 32, verse 7, it says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people who you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them. They've been quick to turn away. Same thing happens in the time of the judges, in Judges chapter 2. They've seen God fight powerfully on their side to capture the land. And then in Judges chapter 2, it says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, yet they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their ancestors, they quickly turned from following the way, the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Do you see, left to our own devices, we quickly turn away. And we all know that in our lives, don't we? we, 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 we maybe we, we hear a sermon and, and we think, Lord, the Holy Spirit has convicted me. You know, I'm being nailed to the wall for a particular area. Maybe it's, I know that I have to be reconciled with a member of my family. Maybe it's, I know that I have to break up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. Maybe it's, I know that the Lord is putting his finger on this particular addiction or habit and saying, now is the time to resolve this thing. Maybe it's just that I know that the Holy Spirit is calling me to something and he's saying, do it right now. And all these kind of things happen, don't they? And we say, Lord... I'll never be the same again. You know, I won't, I'm on a different path now, Lord. You know, this is a totally different me you're going to see now, Lord. And then within weeks, in fact, sometimes within days, we've completely forgotten what we said. That's why it's absolutely essential that we have people in our lives who will hold us to account and say, you said that God had said in your life this. Where is the evidence of you doing something about that? We need people in our lives because we're prone to quickly wander from what we've said. Okay, and lastly then, uh, we also learn from this passage that not all teachers are safe. Um, In fact, the Galatians didn't just wander off by themselves. They had help. And the help came in the form of these teachers who were teaching a gospel other than the one that Paul had said. And um, so what Paul's really saying in this passage is, watch out. Because not all that glitters is gold. Not everything that your ears hear is truth. And so be on your guard. I don't think there was ever a time in the history of humanity when Christian, supposedly Christian teaching was more readily available. You know, you can go onto Amazon right now, and I've checked, there are more than 751,000 books that are ostensibly Christian books. And you can go onto the internet, and you can listen to hundreds of thousands of preachers giving their interpretation of Scripture. And you can even go onto Freeview TV now, and you can watch Christian TV. And I'm not saying that it isn't Christian TV. I haven't, I mean, I've barely watched it. 
But Paul would say to us, more than any generation, I'm sure, watch out, be on your guard. Not everything that you hear is truth. Not all that glitters is gold. So how do we tell the difference between teaching that is going to encourage us and strengthen us and build us up in the Lord and other teaching that is ultimately eventually going to do us harm? Well, here's the, here's the test. He says it in verse 8. He says, Now you might go into the woods in the dark and you might be just having, a, perhaps you're walking your dog, if you have a dog, and you're walking in the dark in the woods and then suddenly there's a flash of lightning and there's a thunderbolt and there's smoke and the whole place is lit up and then there's an angel and the angel comes to you and brings a special revelation that's just for you and it feels like it's an, you know, an uplifting and, a, and an encouraging and a, you know, a positive revelation and you take that to heart. Paul says this, even if an angel should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be cursed. In other words, the test of a good teacher is are they teaching the one true gospel or are they teaching a deviation from the true gospel? That's the test of any good preacher or teacher. And so very briefly then, how do we tell what are the marks of a different gospel and what are the marks of the true gospel? First of all, the different gospel. Firstly, a different gospel is marked by additions to in Christ alone. Perhaps to the Galatians, it seemed like, look, you have, you've got the majority of it anyway, but would you mind just not eating pork? And some of them will have just gone, well, I don't really like bacon anyway, to be honest. So, you know, that's fine. You know, and, and to be honest, I have got a bit of spare time, so I don't mind going to the temple on my day off. You know, that kind of a thing. You can imagine that for some people, it just seemed like a few harmless customs. To the Apostle Paul, to add anything to the gospel is to take it all away. I've got a machine in my kitchen that makes frothy coffee. I'm sure that some of you have got that kind of a contraption. And over Christmas, uh, I, I started to get, you know, to, to take it to a whole new level. Uh, I even took my coffee grinder and I went onto YouTube and I, I found out how, you could, how I could dismantle my coffee grinder and then uh, just make it grind even finer and then put it all back together again. And so, you know, I was making pretty good coffee and then I was perfecting my milk technique as well over Christmas just trying to get it really smooth not big bubbles tiny little bubbles uh, I still can't do the thing where you make shapes on the top they still look like you know funny shape. exactly it's going it's going badly someone will have to show me how to do that anyway the point is just imagine right over Christmas my in-laws are there as well and I'm saying to my father-in-law you know, Keith, I'm going to make you a really lovely coffee and uh, I'm going to make it just how you like it. The only thing is, I've just started adding just a little special extra ingredient. You're going to really love it. It's just a little bit of poison! <laughs> right, that woke you up, didn't it? <laughs> Suddenly, that's no longer a nice smooth latte. That's just poison. The whole coffee is poison. That's just bad. To the Apostle Paul, to add anything to the gospel is to take it all away and to make it absolutely toxic. Anything that sounds like believing in and trusting in Jesus is not quite enough to make you acceptable to God is a different gospel. Even if it's, you know, well, if I were you, 
just to make sure that when you get to meet Jesus face to face in all eternity, he doesn't say, I never knew you. If I were you, I would just make sure that you speak in tongues. Or if I were you, I would just make sure you know your Bible really well. Or I would, you know how we all dress quite smart and you dress quite scruffy when you come to church? I would try and smarten yourself up if I were you. Or I would just try and sort out some of your lifestyle issues just to make sure that God accepts you. Anything that sounds like that is a deviation from the gospel. So the test is, is the message that I'm hearing by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? And if it isn't, it's a different gospel. Secondly, a different gospel causes us to lose our peace. Not our peas, our peace. It's a little joke. What is the effect of, the, uh, of, of this false teaching on the Galatian church? Well, actually, it tells us in verse 7, it says that the teachers are throwing the believers into confusion. And that word that's translated as confusion is the, exactly the same word that is used to describe the disciples in the Gospels whenever they see Jesus and they think he's a ghost. You know, it happens a few times. He's walking on the water. Ah, oh, it's a ghost. No, it's not. It's Jesus. Uh, but in that moment, they're terrified and, and, and so what, what Paul's telling us is that, is that this teaching, this false gospel, is, it's not just, oh, this is a bit confusing. This is, it's, it's bringing fear into the camp. And it, it's, it's causing, the, it's just a mess. They don't know which way is up anymore. And they're deeply troubled. Any message that isn't by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is going to cause us to lose our peace. Because it's ultimately saying, you need to look within yourself and try and find something within yourself that will make you acceptable to God. And you'll never be completely sure whether you found it or not. And so you'll always be afraid. But the true gospel is not like all the other gospels and all the other religions that say it's all about what you do, do, do. The true gospel says Jesus has done it. It's done, done, done. And that's where the peace comes from. From knowing I can be certain that it's finished. My sin's dealt with. I'm 100% acceptable to God the Father because God the Son was an acceptable sacrifice. And thirdly, a different gospel reverses the order of salvation. Verse 7. It says some people are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. And that word that's translated as pervert means literally to twist so as to reverse. And so in other words, the true gospel says God in his grace, in his mercy has reached into your life. And he's transformed you and he's changed you. And, and, and therefore, because he's changed you, you should now live that out as a changed person. Whereas the false gospel says, change yourself and then you'll be acceptable to God. It's the wrong way around. Okay, so what is the true gospel then? What are some marks of the true gospel very briefly before we finish? The first thing is, the true gospel is marked by God's call. Again, verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ. The true gospel is all about the power of God breaking into your life, often when we least expect it, 
and rescuing us, even sometimes before we fully understand what's happening. I loved the um, testimony we had in this site just before Christmas, Kevin Watt. You can go online and you can hear it uh, online. But this is what he said. I wrote it down. He, he was saying that he was coming along to church. He was being around the church, kind of out of curiosity, not expecting in any way that he would become a Christian. And then it, he said this. It was so weird. I had no idea what was happening. It felt like the whole atmosphere had changed. The room was quiet and frozen in time, except the preacher and what he was saying. My heart was pounding and I had butterflies in my stomach. I felt like he was looking straight at me. All of a sudden, I felt like screaming and jumping up and down. I had to restrain myself. And actually, he did restrain himself for about 24 hours until he finally succumbed. The, the true gospel says that God himself calls us to know him. It's his initiation. It's his... It, oh, sorry, it's on his initiative. It's called the doctrine of election. It means that he chose us before we chose him. Secondly, the true gospel is marked by God's grace. The one who called you by the grace of Christ, he says. Just before Christmas, we all went out, didn't we? In fact, first of all, we brought all of our Christmas hampers. Lots of people at every site of our church, they brought these Christmas hampers. Just about 200, I think, 194, something like that. And they brought them to the front of their sites. And then, on a particular Sunday, just before Christmas, we all went out in different teams all over the northeast of Scotland to different sheltered housing complexes and different blocks of flats with elderly people in them. And we knocked on their door uh, and we said, look, we just want to give you this gift from City Church. And I went out with a team of people from here and I did the same and I was mostly the brawn rather than the brains of the outfit if I could say that and um, well probably can't actually anyway we knocked on the door we delivered these things and time and time again people said the same thing they said what why me I don't even know you oh that's so kind that's so generous I, 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 it's not at all what I was expecting that's so lovely the gospel of Christ always comes to us like that why me I don't even know you. That's so kind of you. Why would you do that for me? Often we find ourselves, the true gospel, when it, when it comes to us, we find ourselves saying, but I, I'm a schemer. I play the game. My motivations are often not good. I'm a selfish person. And yet everything that you're doing in my life, God, is so lovely, so amazing, so kind. It can't be about anything to do with me. It has to be just your generosity, God. The true gospel comes to us as God's grace. And lastly, the true gospel is centered around Jesus. You know, lots of people will say, oh, you can be a spiritual person. And, you know, there are lots of ways to God and lots of ways to discover peace or whatever. But actually, Paul doesn't let them get away with that. In verse 6, he talks about the grace of Christ. In verse 7, it's the gospel of Christ. In verse 11, it, he calls himself the servant of Christ. It's all about Jesus. There is no way to spend eternity with God outside of Jesus. 
any gospel that, that doesn't clearly state that it's about Jesus allowing his own body to be broken and his own blood to be shed and his own real body being laid in a real tomb and then being really raised from the dead and then now he really being uh, seated at the right hand of the Father having offered the sacrifice he made in the Holy of Holies in all eternity on our behalf any other gospel other than that is a deviation the true gospel is about Jesus why don't we stand?